This podcast is brought to you by Freedom Physical Therapy Services, providing one-on-one comprehensive physical and occupational therapy services, including women's health, chronic pain treatment, TMJ, and more. With four locations in Fox Point, Grafton, Brookfield, and McGuanago, Wisconsin. More information at freedompt.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Freedom Talks. Uh, today, we're going to talk about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or EDS, and we've got three therapists who are knowledgeable about the disease and have seen it in the clinic. Um, we're going to talk today about what it is, um, how we treat it, and um, just give you some facts and information about it. So I'm going to have each of the therapists uh, introduce themselves. Uh, we'll start with you, Nicole. Uh, hi, my name is Nicole Gardner, and I'm a physical therapist. Hi, my name is Erin Buffuno. I'm also a physical therapist. And I'm Adrienne Lukopoulos. I'm an occupational therapist. Awesome. Um, so we're, they have a little bit different perspectives. Adrienne's a relatively new therapist coming out of school just a while ago, and she's an occupational therapist, so hopefully we'll get um, a different perspective than uh, two PTs that have been practicing for a little while. So um, we'll start by just what is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome um, and what does it entail? Um, I guess I'll start with that. So, um, right, what is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome? Um, it is an inherited uh, connective tissue disorder um, and it affects um, particularly the protein, which is called collagen, which helps bind together your connective tissue. And basically it's a faulty production of that protein and um, then you have more laxity in your connective tissues and you just feel more loose jointed overall. Um, Mostly it deals with the collagen, as I mentioned before, but some new research has also suggested that um, another protein called tennyson, which does a similar function as collagen, it can potentially be influenced as well um, based on what genetics are um, influenced Per person. Um, many people also ask what um, Ehlers Danios actually means, and it's just from the two physicians, um, and both were actually also dermatologists um, who coined the disease a um, few years back um, called Edward Ehlers and Henry Alexandra Danlos as well. So, just fun fact there. Um, yeah, so overall, it's just generally characterized by. Um, excessive joint mobility and um, hyperextensibility of the skin and just general tissue fragility as well. (laughs) All right. So a lot of big words. um, And if you're a physician or you're another practicing therapist, you probably know what a lot of that meant. But let's break down a few of those terms. So first of all, what is collagen and what is connective tissue in layman's terms? How would you explain that to a patient? So if we're talking about connective tissue, it's basically any of the tissue we have in our body that holds pieces together. So basically, if you imagine putting a car carrier or something on top of your car and you use that rope to wrap it around and keep it together, that's kind of what we're talking about here is generally the things that's most, that are most affected and affect that true extensibility or laxity, which is joint mo- over basically excessive joint mobility is the ligaments that help hold the bones and hold the joints together. So when those ligaments are kind of, 
I want to say faulty, but they're a little deficient in the amount of collagen or the type of collagen they have. They're not thick or strong enough to help hold the joints together. So that's really the part that we're looking at mostly, at least in the physical therapy and at least occupational therapy aspect, is to look truly at the joint um, and then the ligament tissue um, overall. So let's, let's just for example, let's take a look at the knee. What part of the knee is connective tissue compared to what is dense bone compared to what is muscle tissue? So when we're talking about the leg so we're, and the knee, so the knee is a compilation, uh, composition actually of the femur, which is your thigh bone, and then the shin bone, which is your tibia. So you have those two bones that meet together, and then there's thick, thick ligaments on the outer aspect of it. So you have your MCL, your LCL, ACL and PCL, which are commonly, at least the ACL is commonly talked about today with a lot of sports injuries. Um, but then you also have tissue that's called our joint capsule that helps hold the joint together as well, which are other ligaments that are just not commonly talked about, um, at least in terms of what we do, just because we're not inside working on the knee, we're working on the outside aspects of it. Um, so, yeah. And so we can see this affect all joints in the body, is that correct? Correct. It's a whole. So when we say systemic, it's a true whole body and whole body experience essentially so it can be your ankle knee hip back it can be even up near your throat so sometimes people can have swallowing issues um, it can even be up in the upper part of your cervical or the upper part of your neck where the base of your neck meets your head which can then also lead to some other issues that we can talk about a little bit later and right based on as we'll talk soon there's different subtypes of EDS and based on the certain subtypes, you may have more issues in one area of the body than the other. And then there is um, more general subtypes where it's just a full body, as Aaron mentioned before, um, hyperextensibility and hypermobility. How many people are we talking about um, being affected by this? I, I know we've got some stats written down, but we want to get that information out. Yeah, so... Um, it can be upwards of every one um, in 2,500 to one in 5,000 people, um, but some recent research suggests it may even be more common than that. Um, overall, in the U.S., about one to three percent of people have one to three percent of people have this. From when I was in school, actually, so I graduated probably over five years ago, and when I graduated, the numbers were actually a lot less. But I think partially because there was not many people were had the ability to do a lot of the genetic testing, which is that mm -hmm. that is how they actually truly prove that you have. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is by genetic testing. So that wasn't as readily available, but also people didn't know what to look for or what to do when they found it. So I think it has become more prevalent just because the diagnostics and the ability to truly see and kind of pinpoint these issues that people have has improved. So I think that's why it almost seems a lot more common now than it was originally. Yeah, I would say that's probably the biggest complaint of patients too, is that physicians and medical providers don't know what it is still. It's still really new. So they get really frustrated with that, finding people that can help them and diagnose them and get that diagnosis. Are there varying degrees to which this affects you? So you might have it, but it's undiagnosed. You don't know what's going wrong. You show some symptoms, but maybe it's not super affecting day-to-day -day life. Is that the, can be the case? Or if you have it, you know you have it because there are all these symptoms. That's a really good question. Um, I would say most people, I would say do, know something's wrong, but don't know what it is. So they just think they're someone maybe that might have fibromyalgia just because they report a lot of chronic, generally people report a lot of chronic pain where they're just in pain all over their body, all of the time, might be tired. Um, so I think it's more 
along that aspect where they know something's wrong, they just don't know what, and then they've maybe been to their primary care provider or we have um, direct access in Wisconsin, so a lot of patients will come to us first before they go see their primary care doctor. So a lot of times it's screening on our end to try and then help them get back to their primary care physician and kind of give them a heads up of what we think is going on to try and kind of push them in the right direction. But I don't think every person generally thinks I have a disease or something like that. It's kind of underlying, unless something really bad happened, like just something crazy out of the blue that would normally happen. Um, just kind of going off the path here. Some people do report a lot of like heart palpitations. So a, t a lot of times like that's where people will end up seeing someone first or even there's a lot of um, GI issues. So they might end up at a GI doc first and then that's kind of how it ends up being found. So it's not always just the tissue part. We, that's what we treat here, at least the joints and the muscles, but there are some other body systems that are affected. And going back to, you know, um, defining EDS, it is inherited. It's all um, subtypes of EDS have a genetic link except for one. Um, so many times parents, if they are already diagnosed with it, they're looking out for this with their kids. And then if vice versa, if um, a child starts to notice um, difficulty moving, excessive pain, then they might go and get tested. And then the parents look back at their own um, genetic past and see if there's an influence there. So um, there is definitely some sort of genetic testing that is done and people can expect potentially that to happen. But that one um, subtype that doesn't have a connection genetically yet, exactly what Aaron was saying, it's more based on symptoms and clinical um, presentation too. So let's go into that. How, how is this diagnosed? you know you have something wrong, you said you, you might have issues with your GI tract or something like that, and, and you finally see a, a doctor that knows of this disease. How are they uh, testing to find out if this is actually the case? Um, so, right. Um, as we've mentioned before, there's certain di 13 different subtypes. Every subtype has a specific checklist and clinical presentation that you need to fit in order to fit into that subtype. Um, each subtype m overlap really well, so you could be very similar in 10 of them, but you're the mm -hmm. closest to a certain one. Um, and that's usually where they start. Men, oftentimes people don't have access either to that genetic testing, but the as Aaron mentioned earlier, genetic testing is the um, most definitive way to find out if you actually have this issue. Um, but as I mentioned, there is the hyper, um, hypermobile EDS as the only one that doesn't have a genetic link. Um, and the only way to have the idea that you, if you have it is by checking yourself off on that clinical presentation list um, and just determining if is this close enough to what you're dealing with. Um, but that hypermobility EDS is on the spectrum of just hypermobility dis disorder. So people can be hypermobile, but that doesn't mean that they have EDS. So it's just a wide range. Um, but if you're looking at simply the genetic component of EDS, you have to get genetically tested to figure out if you actually have it. Um, yeah. Yeah, so when we're talking about the diagnosis aspect, at least in the clinic for us, the pieces that we're looking at, um, there's a scale we use, and it's called the Byton scale. So it's a nine point scale. And generally, we look to see if someone is a five or above, which I'll kind of talk through what the points of are on the scale. But if you're a five or above, which is five out of nine, then we generally kind of deem you in this hypermobile class, which means it's just something that we're kind of trying to keep an eye on and see are there maybe other issues going on. So we might then screen for cardiovascular issues, ask you about GI issues. And then from that point, that's where we kind of 
probably send you back to your primary care doctor or try to recommend some other specialists to follow up with. But um, so this test, the Biden scale, we're looking at nine total topics. So um, you get a point for each one if you go, th if you fall into these, um, I guess, categories, if you will. So the first one is taking your pinky or your fifth digit and you're trying to almost bend it backwards. So you're trying to see if you can reach a 90 degree angle at that point and you get one point for each finger. So if you're able to do it on one finger and not the other, you'd only get one point. But if you were able to do it on both, you'd get two points. Um, the next one then is looking at the hyperextension or the ability to fully straighten your elbow. And if you're able to straighten it past the point where it's just one straight line by about 10 degrees is what the test is, I believe, is about 10 mm -hmm. degrees, um, then you get a point again for each elbow. So they're separate. So if you don't have either elbow, you get zero points. But if you have one and or two, you get one or two points for that. We then also look at the same thing for the knee is if it can be fully hyperextended by about 10 degrees again. So if you were to lift your foot up, if someone were to lift your foot up off of the table, if your knee sags down a little bit towards the table, almost make, like making a smiley face that where that knee is kind of dipping down, that will be that hyperextension piece for you. And then the ability to fully stand up and then reach your palms down to the floor. So then that counts as one point. I think I missed one. No, there's one more. Do you see the thumb one? Uh, no. So the thumb one is where you take your thumb and it's just kind of the hardest one to describe, at least over the radio um, or podcast, if you will. So you'll take your thumb and you'll pull it down and try to have it reach the inside portion of your forearm. So that one usually I see the most and the people that at least I'm the most concerned about is a lot of people can't do that. But particularly people that have very hypermobile joints where we start working on that, like right away to try and address is the one where you can bring your thumb down to your forearm because that's pretty hard to do. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this is a very basic test, and we do have that five out of nine cutoff for, you know, pubescent to 50 years old, but what if you're four out of nine, or what if you're a little over? There's also the five-part questionnaire, which um, gives just a little extra information to us on whether or not you're going towards the hypermobile side, or if it's more so, oh, I injured my knee way back, uh, way back when, and it's just more hyperextensible than it should be, um, because we need to look at that as well. So going into that five-part questionnaire, um, those questions are, can you now or could you ever place your hands flat on the floor without bending your knees? Because um, if you could do that way back in the past, but maybe you have more um, hamstring tension now than you did before, that can influence just the range you have, but not necessarily the extensibility of the joint. Um, number two, can you now or could you ever bend your thumb to touch your forearm, just like Aaron was talking about prior? Um, number three, as a child, did you amuse your friends by contorting your body into strange shapes? Or could you do the splits? Um, and then number four, as a child or teenager, did your kneecap or shoulder dislocate on more than one location? And finally, five, do you consider yourself double-jointed as well? So that's just a nice way for us to get a little more information to put yourself either into that range where we need to get further testing um, or if there's more so um, just a general hyperextensibility as well. And just to be clear, that was just for the hypermobility aspect of like that one subtype? Um, correct. It's simply looking at hypermobility, not necessarily if you are a, um, you fit into an EDS subtype, because all of the subtypes have a general hypermobility to them. Um, but then this determines on whether or not you fit that hypermobility criteria. That makes I sense. see. Okay. A lot of comp you know, there's a lot that goes into it, definitely. Um, all right, is there anything else you guys have to say in general about EDS, or do you guys want to move into kind of the treatment side of things um, in the clinic? 
Can I say like the only other, I guess the only other thing, pots, was that what you were going to say? Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) We're on the same language. So one of the other um, pieces that is generally seen with EDS is um, people will also have symptoms related to, it's called POTS, so it's postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. Um, Just because you have POTS does not mean you have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but a lot of people that have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome do have POTS, and I think it's somewhere Mm -hmm. around like 50%, I believe, where it's it's a... 49%, 49%, but yeah, 50%. Yeah, that's a lot, yeah. So a significant number of people that um, do present with POTS, and um, that's just generally what we call it as POTS. It's just an easier way instead of saying all the words, but um, it is a form of, we call it dysautonomia, where you have these underlying systems in your body that always work on their own, um, but then, so that includes like your blood pressure, heart rate, things like that, that are always working that you're not thinking about. Um, but particularly with this one, because it's postural, when you go to stand up, sometimes your blood pressure will just skyrocket because once you stand up, gravity's pulling all your blood down towards your feet, but then your heart rate doesn't necessarily respond to try and push that blood back up to your head. So you get this confusion between your blood pressure, your heart rate, and some of the other kind of automatic systems in your body, and that can lead to fainting, fatigue, a lot of dizziness, um, which then makes a lot of life very difficult because anytime you're upright, if you feel like this, it makes pretty much every daily activity like really difficult or trying to get out of bed really difficult and and this is totally different um than if you are dehydrated and you didn't drink a lot of water or if you're on new medications or if you've had an excessive internal bleeding you stand up and then right you just feel dizzy this is completely different this is a neurological issue um and doesn't change if you drink more water it can improve if you drink more water sometimes if they also have dehydration and things like that, but simply stating it's more of a neurological issue. Um, right. All right, so let's let's move into some of the treatment aspects because I have seen POTS patients and we have seen EDS patients in the clinic, so we can talk a little bit more about those um, in this uh, section of the podcast. Um, so do you guys all have patients... Um, currently or beforehand that have had EDS, correct? Yes. 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 Okay. Um, so there, there's no cure for EDS, um, but treatment is common, and they're, like I was looking at the list, it's super extensive, the amount of healthcare providers that they consult or have to consult on a regular basis to make sure that everything's going okay. So um, how do you approach someone with this syndrome um, and how are they different than other patients um, when you're treating them? So I think one of the main things is that no matter what, they're just like any other patient we would generally Mm. treat where when it comes down to it, at least, at least in the last 10, 15 years of PT, it's really been focused on just the overall symptoms and what we call like an impairment based diagnosis is, I don't want to say it doesn't matter what diagnosis you have because you're still a patient to us and we want to help you get better, whatever those impairments are, is yes, your diagnosis does play into how, like precautions we'll take along the route, but overall, we want to help you get better at what you want to do and reduce your pain or whatever that means. So it really does come down to like a symptom base. So a lot of times, what we'll see in this situation is more chronic pain or just consistent joint pain, muscle pain. Um, sometimes people will come in if it's a little bit more, I don't know, if they had it a long time and just didn't really notice certain things or are not particularly active, then they'll notice a lot of 
joint subluxations or possibly even dislocations, like Nicole was mentioning in one of the questionnaires prior, that um, if your joint gets loose or what we call laxity, that in certain positions it becomes really vulnerable. And then when the joint is kind of pushed beyond its capacity to be able to control it, then it can kind of, be, I hate to say become disjointed, but that's a common word people will say, or again, become partially dislocated. It doesn't completely come out of place, but it will partially come out of place and then and then go back in. But when this happens, the joint gets really aggravated, gets swollen and gets inflamed. And then that's where a lot of the pain then comes from is from that, from that joint laxity. And I would say that's one of the biggest questions I ask those patients is, do you dislocate often? Because I like to know that so that yeah. I'm prepared if something does happen. And I will avoid, you know, a lot of stretching with them. I will avoid all joint mobilizations because they can't tolerate that at all. So I, I like to ask that. Are some of the treatments like more painful than usual for them? Is that common? Um, I would say, at least just in my experience, we're just more cautious with what we're trying to do. And as um, Adrian mentioned earlier, right, um, we I tend to avoid um, excessive joint mobilizations as well because the joint is already lax. So, right, they might just not have tolerance to some activities at first. So if we can slowly build that muscular strength to co um, compensate for the lack of joint um, stability. It's not that they can't accomplish it. It just may take a little more time and we just may need to be more cautious with what we're doing, um, especially in the first initial PT or OT sessions too. Because um. when it comes down to just like any any patient we would see in the clinic, usually people are coming in because they're in pain. So usually like that's the first thing that we're trying to address is trying to reduce pain. So whether it's swelling, joint inflammation, where even the joint might look red just because it's swollen and really inflamed. So that's the first piece we're trying to hit because overall, just because they're, the joints are a little hypermobile and they have a lot of extra movement, our overall end goal is to really emphasize strengthening. So that's mm -hmm. really what comes down in the, at the overall end game of treating um, this particular diagnosis is emphasizing stabilization of all of the joints. Um, whether we need to do some bracing along the way, that's one option that can be done, but also a lot of strengthening is kind of the main piece. But sometimes you just can't strengthen a person on the first day they walk in the door because their joints are so aggravated. Um, particularly, a lot of our muscles only work well if there's no inflammation. Every time your body or a certain joint experiences pain, your nervous system thinks that that action is causing the pain. So then your body's gonna send signals to the muscle to tell it to actually shut down. So you're actually getting an, an, an inhibition of that muscle. So the muscle starts shutting down and then you actually start getting weaker, which then if you imagine increased weakness will then create even more joint movement, which then further aggravates the joint. So it kind of becomes this vicious cycle, but that's kind of where the end game overall is strengthening. But a lot of times you just need to address the pain first by whatever means you can. And a lot of it, too, is, you know, these people have built, dealt with this their whole life. You know, maybe they weren't diagnosed with it earlier, but if they did have that genetic component um, in all but one of those subtypes, right, this is a lifelong thing that they're trying to manage. So a lot of it is patient education, too. Um, you know, they can't just come to therapy and we do some exercises and they go home and they do the same thing. It's more so figuring out how the patient can manage it themselves and um, be an advocate for themselves as well. Um, uh, again, how, how early can this, like, manifest itself? Can it be as, as early as like less than 10 years old or is it normally after that? I think even day one. I oh, mean, okay. I think it's hard with a newborn because they really just don't have much joint joint stabilization, stabilization right. at all yeah. and they really, their bones aren't fully developed at that point. So I think it's harder to tell because they do just kind of feel like a lump. There's just not much going on and um, that's why you always have to stabilize the head of a baby anyway because they just don't have that stabilization. So I think 
it's just all dependent on if there's anything really out of the ordinary that the pediatrician might notice. You might not notice it until they are more active or maybe even if like four or five and they're really complaining about like leg pain or, cause a lot of times, I mean, kids might say pain like they got an owie if they bumped something on or fell down. But other than that, they're not going to be complaining day in and day out of irritation or even maybe jumping on trampoline with friends and then they dislocate. So like there might be symptoms like that that lead to an earlier diagnosis, but um, I feel like the youngest person I've seen has maybe been like 10. But again, I think it was more of a traumatic incident that led to them going to a doctor that then found it out. I don't think they would have noticed it otherwise. I've heard of a couple younger diagnoses, but that was because the parents had a history of it. And so it was, they were more aware of it just because of that genetic component. And I have an, um, a situation right now where actually the children um, had an issue and, you know, they ended up being diagnosed and now it's going backwards where the mother has had a history, a long history of chronic pain and issues. And now she's starting to realize, well, maybe this is coming from me. So she's getting genetic testing done soon to just, and sometimes it's nice just to have that comfort of realizing maybe just having more confidence what's going on. So, right, she's getting genetic testing done just to see it's coming from her side or maybe the husband's side. I guess, how how active are these patients normally? And, like, I, I understand that it might vary, but, like, are these people able to go out and, like, run or play sports or, like, jump on a trampoline, like you said, where that's a little bit more high impact? Or is that something that most of these patients are eventually just going to have to avoid because it's too uh, risky? Um, so I have a patient that didn't necessarily have, um, at least genetic testing-wise, did not come up positive um, for EDS, but had pretty much every similar, every almost positive checklist. It was just the genetic testing didn't come back positive and even had the POTS component and everything and very hypermobile, a lot of chronic pain initially, but then like was able to play field hockey. I mean, it was not very competitive and it was not very aggressive, but she was still able to play it and was still able to be running around and I mean, mostly on turf, wasn't on grass as much, so more of those unstable surfaces might be more difficult. But, I mean, I probably wouldn't advise heavy contact sports, like, unless it was a no no check or no hit or no slide tackle. Like, maybe you could play soccer, but it would have to be very recreational. But, again, I hate to say it's all dependent on the person, but it pretty much is all dependent on the person. Any histories of dislocations or subluxations, um, but I mean, run. I think running, anything like that, once they feel strong enough to do so, and if they're able to do it without pain, like the best thing people can do is cardiovascular activity, because again, it's full body strengthening, which will only help further stabilize the joints. So if you don't mind, can we dive in a little bit into the POTS side of things? Um, just not that this is, you know, we want to focus on EDS, but those who have EDS and POTS, um, are those... I, I've, I've only seen one case of POTS in the time that I've been at Freedom, and it's super, super debilitating for that patient. Is that every patient, or is, is it varying degrees, just like EDS? There's varying degrees of it. I have a patient that has EDS and also POTS, and um, it, it's not super debilitating. What he notices is, like, standing for a long time. He also has to sit and take breaks because he can get lightheaded if he's standing and doing his work and um, or if we're working on the table and he's laying down I just take we take extra time to sit up and, but then he's fine and it's not that he's passing out every time he's changes from one position to another so but then there are those patients that do have that where it's much more debilitating so it's just it's a varying degree of it 
And oftentimes, too, if it's that degree of debilitation, they haven't had consultation with their physician or anything like that to get some level of treatment. And then they go through, they may get medications, then they start to develop the same strategies that you mentioned, taking your time, transitioning from sitting to standing where they don't get that same level of symptoms as usual. Um, I've also, there's also um, a nutritional component as well. Usually they suggest more of a salt intake than usual just to help with the balance. Um, so right, usually people who have POTS figure out those tricks along the way to make it more manageable and functional. Um, but then people who just haven't had that treatment yet are the ones who just need to get more um, help with that. So in terms at least of the healthcare provider that you would see just to help with the POTS would be a cardiologist and possibly a neurologist as well. But usually cardiologist is kind of the best place to go, um, at least to start. Is that correct, everybody? Mm -hmm. You agree with me? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> cardiologist would be at least the best place to start um, for there. Um, and then you also could, at least for the parts that Nicole was commenting on, is at least a nutritionist. Like a nutritionist is like a great um, additional option to, to help. Um, one other at least treatment aspect, which I hate to say it all comes back to exercise, at least for us being therapists, but um, one of the pieces at least that can has been heavily documented at least in research is that exercise can be like extremely beneficial for a patient that does have POTS. It's just unfortunately getting to, to the point where you can't exercise. So mm -hmm. a lot of times, like we might start with a lot of like consistent, like resistive exercises, maybe laying down just to see if we could help build tolerance and build strengthening there. Cause the more tone you have in your muscles helps with the tone of your vascular system. And then just can help with at least trying to get blood back to your body. Yes. It's all like a neurologic base, or at least it's initiated from the neurologic system, but the more you can kind of tone up the rest of your body and help with strength and at least return of blood flow back to the center of your body, then it will help at least with some of those symptoms as well. And PT-wise, too, um, now I personally have never done this with a patient, but anecdotally I've known of other therapists who have done this as well. Um, um, it's called transcutaneous vagal nerve stimulation. So the vagus nerve play is basically the, large, the primary cranial nerve that influences the organs through the rest of your body. Um, there's a spot just along your earlobe that you can access one part of the vagal nerve, um, and they have done electrode stimulation to your ear to help tone down or you know, stimulate the vagal nerve to try to improve that heart rate function. That's the primary issue of people who try to sit up. So yeah, that's a definitely an interesting thing that just personally I haven't tried, but anecdotally I've heard of some really good benefits from that as well. So I guess what I'm taking away from this is treatment super complex. You. I'm guessing are in contact with a lot of these other healthcare providers while you're treating their patient, correct? I mean. Generally, yes. And usually, it, particularly doctors and other physicians, well, doctors are physicians, but those individuals that um, at least have worked with a patient that have EDS is if they do have the history of it, they realize that how important it is to have truly the team approach. Like you hear about it on TV, you hear about it in advertisements, but truly like when it comes down to a patient that has so many so many different systems in the body affected it, like it is really important that every person on the healthcare team does communicate so at least in the in the doctors that have treated it and have many patients with it they're generally more open to communication not that not all aren't it's just i understand it's hard to, hard to get it all done in a day but particularly it's really important in this situation just because of medication changes physical changes other things going on it's important to have everybody all on the same page and is just dealing with EDS in general, have you received any 
specific education or extra training or just had to do it because you had these patients come in and you're like, oh, I got to learn about this now uh, and approach it that way? Um, On a clinical rotation, I had treated um, a patient with EDS and my clinical rotation like Proctor basically had treated quite a few in the past. So that was where I had some of my initial information, but the majority of our jobs and our continued education at this point, as much as we have hours we have to complete each year, a lot of it is all research based on our own. So a lot, a lot of therapists, at least at our facility do a lot of research outside of the clinic. And we do journal talks and things here where we do talk about um, new research, what's come up and, but a lot of it, a lot of it is on your own and doing a lot of just journal research and doing a lot of at least the medical aspect research on the backside of things. Yeah, it's been it's been awesome to see um, a lot of our therapists be able to tackle a lot of these uh, topic topics and um, treatment techniques because a lot of these people I hear have a hard time finding treatment for their condition or at least providers that have some experience treating EDS or POTS syndrome. Um, is there any resources that someone, you know, they can reach out to if they're having a hard time finding uh, providers that um, can help them with this? So there's the EDS Foundation that's worldwide, but then also in Wisconsin, I was just talking to a patient about this, there's Wisconsin puts out, um, or patients that have EDS, they can almost nominate providers of EDS, and so you can go on there and they can look up different providers around the area, um, I know Madison, there's one provider out there that specializes in it, but it takes a long time to get into him. Um, a lot of my patients also have joined a lot of Facebook groups and have connected with different patients around the world. And um, you can even go on to say, like, I work in this job and I'm looking for an EDS, you know, patients that also have the same job. And how do you deal with your job that way? So I have one patient that has done that and connected with some other people that do the same job. And he's found ways to help modify and work work better. I think like the most important thing aside from all of the medical benefits that you can get from seeing your providers is finding a community is it's really hard because it is a small percentage of people that do have this and truly unless someone else in your family or someone has had it it's really hard to deal with a lot of this because it affects your everyday life all day every day Um, so even sometimes like I've had patients connect where I've had two patients at the same time that have very very similar issues and both were getting tested for ES at the same time so if they were both okay with it and I had them both like sign waivers and everything saying they were okay with it. And then I had, and then I introduced them. So then they met through at least through here. But then again, they had some person in town live close that they were able to at least communicate with. They didn't necessarily hang out or anything, but at least just someone to text, like if they're having a rough day, um, just someone else to have outside of your family that maybe if someone in your family doesn't have it, but um, at least directly that, you know, of at least someone that knows what you're going through. Yeah, and the internet's kind of nice for that now that, you know, you're might be far away physically from someone, but you do have a community that you can reach out to online. Um, are there any other takeaway points that you guys uh, want to have for any anybody that might be suffering from EDS uh, that doesn't feel like they're getting the proper treatment or just want to get back to doing day-to-day activities without pain? Um, 
Partly, too, as Aaron's mentioned before, as much as it hurts to move, it's good to move. So finding someone who supports you to do that and to slowly get you back into activity, you know, such as therapists or some other support system, that's just a great way to get started. And it's not easy to start, but, you know, this is a lifelong thing. So the sooner you can learn how to manage it and improve your own quality of life, the better it is for you. Yeah. And kind of as Nicole said, is just because you start moving one day and it's good for you to move does not mean you're going to feel better tomorrow. So I think that's also another hard pill to hard pill to swallow where like I'll tell people to maybe journal or track on a calendar just to help monitor your symptoms is you'll get better, but it's going to be it's going to feel like it's at a snail's pace or you're not getting better at all. So you have to think long term, like six months to a year with being very consistent about strengthening exercises and just doing pain management techniques, working with maybe even a pain doctor to help with control your pain so you can do the strengthening aspects. That is more of a long haul. It's not just going to get better in two weeks because you did three exercises someone gave you. That Unfortunately, it is more of a longer-term piece, but the sooner you start, then the sooner you will start feeling better. Well, on that note, I think we're going to end here. I appreciate you guys coming on and talking about it, and hopefully we raise some awareness and um, can give a little bit more insight as to uh, what's going on um, with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and what providers are doing to help treat it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. podcast is brought to you by Freedom Physical Therapy Services, an independent provider of comprehensive physical and occupational therapy services. No matter how challenging your issues, if other treatments have failed, we are determined to help you heal, starting with the very first visit. Four convenient locations in the Milwaukee area. More information at freedompt.com.